You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 38. Today, we're asking the question, can we get ready for automation by studying non-automated systems? Let's get started. Hey, everybody. My name's David Proven, and I'm here with Drew Ray, and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. In each episode of the Safety of Work podcast, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety, and we examine the evidence surrounding it. So, Drew, what's today's question? David, today we're basically just going to be talking about the safety of automated and autonomous systems. And I think the example that most people would be familiar with is the idea of driverless cars. A common problem with this sort of automation is that we don't really always understand the current role of humans in the system. Humans do all sorts of things as part of their job that never get formally recorded, never get written down, never get noticed until the human doesn't have happen to be there. And then all of a sudden we regret the absence of the human. And so what some researchers advocate is that before we leap forward into introducing artificial intelligence or autonomous systems, we should be doing more just basic work to understand humans doing their jobs so that we understand what it is that we're trying to automate or understand what it is that we're trying to replace when we try to remove the human from the loop. And so that's just the basics for this episode. Is, is that a good idea? Can we get ready for automation by studying non-automated systems and the people inside those systems? Yeah, Drew, I really like the question, the paper that you picked for this week, because I'm not that familiar with the literature around automated systems and automation and artificial intelligence, but I'd consider myself more familiar with the literature around, you know, how people do their work in sort of complex socio-technical type of systems, you know, on the people side. And so I really like this study because this study is really basically answering that question that you've posed, which is, you know, there's a we'll talk about it shortly, but there's a small passenger ferry in Norway that is proposed to be replaced with an autonomous ferry. So this study kind of looks like, I looks at, well, let's understand what the system looks like before we introduce the automation. And I, I think the people involved might have been left scratching their heads about how to approach the automation process. Yes, I think that they thought that they were getting in for something a little bit less complex than they discovered. So the paper we've chosen is called Observation and Assessment of Crossing Situations Between Pleasure Craft and a Small Passenger Ferry. And as we're going to find out, this is a specific small passenger ferry. It even has a name. The paper was published in 2020 in the WMU Journal for Maritime Affairs. This is a little bit out of our normal beating grounds. Where, but a number of my sort of international collaborators are in the maritime space. It's a fairly sophisticated subfield of looking at risk assessment. Uh, the authors in this particular case, my apologies if any of them are listening and I totally mangle their Norwegian names, Overgaard, Tannen and Havardum. Uh, they're all from the Southeastern University of Norway. And it's a collaboration between professors. There are no junior researchers in this case. The first author is an expert in work and organisational factors. And the other two experts, other two authors are experts in maritime. So we've got a sort of mix between study expertise and subject matter expertise. And basically they wrote this paper as part of what I assume is an industry project that was contracted to the university. 
there's this small passenger ferry ferry called Ole 3. Ole, uh, I'll call it Ole. So Ole 3 just has one job. Ole 3 goes back and forth across a hundred meter wide stretch of water and does it dozens upon dozens of times every day. There's this strait between mainland Norway and a small island. It's fairly busy traffic. The journey only takes about two minutes. And so the captain on this ferry just goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Probably not your world's most exciting job for an experienced captain. And so the plan is to replace poor little Ole 3 with some sort of automated craft. Yeah, I like this. You know, I was when I was looking at passenger ferry, I was thinking about, you know, roll on, roll off ferries and all this sort of stuff. And then there's a photo in the paper of this little yellow boat with uh, two little bench seats in the front and, you know, a single driver looking out a little windscreen. And I think, you know, I think that'd be a fantastic job for two months of the year in summer, which is when the study was done. The study was done between June and August. But yeah, for the rest of the year, it, it may not be so pleasant. But Drew, interestingly, I think they, they talk about the rules that govern the interactions of uh, vessels um, in Norwegian waters. And this is the starting point because they, they wanted to know how, how, this, how this vessel should interact with other vessels. So basically they say, well, there's a very clear rule that vessels should give way to vessels on their starboard side. So if a vessel's on your right, you would slow down and cross aft of that vessel and pretty straightforward. But then the complication goes on to say, however, as far as possible, vessels should stay out of the way of commercial vessels. So pleasure craft vessels should stay away from commercial vessels. So this little tiny, I think three meter or something by a few meter vessel is actually a commercial vessel. But the captain's going, well, are other people going to think that I'm a commercial vessel or are they going to think that I'm a normal vessel? And then there was a third rule around um, what should happen as well, where the authors, you know, in a couple of sections just say, it's actually not really clear what, you know, it could be very, it could be clear in very different ways to different people involved in this system what they should do. Yes. So, so the, the rationale for a lot of the waterway rules is about what different vessels are capable of. That It's very easy for a little Sabo sailing boat to tack back and forth and get out of the way of an oil tanker. It's really hard for the oil tanker to give way to the sailing boat, regardless of which side of the oil tanker the sailing boat is on. So the rules you know, have say, which side are you on? But then they say, okay, so commercial vessels basically get priority, typically because commercial vessels can't dodge and can't stop. But Ole can. Ole's just a tiny little boat. You know, Ole can suddenly go backwards if he needs to, to get out of the way of other boats. And this assumption that the sailing vessels have more capability assumes that the person sailing the sailing boat is sober. Andrew, you throw that in there like, like you said, but the study did talk about a number of human factors or or you know, factors associated with other people in the system. And what the, what the study had reported was that having a test for getting a boat license in Norway only applies to someone born from 1980 onwards. So there's something like 40% of the people in Norway who hold a boat license where no one's really got any idea about what the navigational capability of those pilots of those vessels are. You're being generous, David. I've read the paper. We know what the navigational capabilities okay, of some of these pilots are. And then there was another study that this paper referenced that said um, 45% of um, of pleasure craft vessel pilots or captains, I'm not quite sure what to call them, report drinking immediately before or during driving their vessel. 
So your little throwaway there about them being sober means that, you know, generously half the people uh, were not sure about their navigational capabilities and half of the people were not sure whether they're sober. I don't know what this says about summertime in Norway, but this does sound like a very relaxed waterway to be on, but a very busy and you potentially dangerous. It's not shallow. Um, the channel you know, gets to six metres deep. So if you go overboard and you hit your head or you can't swim, you're going to be in serious trouble. Um, you, collisions are actually a serious safety issue. You were talking, David, about summer jobs. Uh, the data for this paper was collected over two months from 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. every day of those two months. And this was the summer job of two second-year students who took it in turns to go on every single crossing during those hours during that time. I like that, Drew. It was something like the data was from the 4th of June till the 4th of August, so very much summer holidays. And like I said, 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. every day and you know, nearly 5,000 two-minute crossings of this vessel, you know, beside the captain taking note of all other craft and all the situations that little Ollie 3 found himself in. So the two students, they kept track of who was on the ferry and how many other vessels were crossing the path of the ferry coming from each side. And the, the side just matters because of the navigation rules. If they're crossing from one side, they ha officially have right of way. If they're crossing from the other side, they definitely don't have right of way. With the slight confusion that everyone is supposed to be giving way if they're a pleasure craft to this commercial vehicle. So the researchers kept track of every time that the navigation regulations weren't followed and what the captain of Ole 3 did about it. And then they had the professors checking this data to make sure that the researchers were correctly interpreting and classifying based on the navigational rules and the situation. So Drew, like I said, there was 4,802 crossings and zero accidents. So I suppose with the absence of incident makes this a completely safe system. But I think underlying that is even though things go well, or even those things went well 4,802 of the time, there were in fact some unsafe situations that Ollie 3 found himself in. So 3,152 of these crossings involved other vessels. So about two thirds of the time, there were other craft involved that either responded to or Ollie 3 had to kind of respond to. So, you know, a total of nearly 7,500 interactions with other vessels. For those interested in keeping track, you know, a bit over 6,000 passengers, 1,300 of those were kids and 60 times or so people needed assistance on or off the ferry. So, you know, very young kids or disabled um, people and 4,000 bikes. So a lot going on for the captain of um, of Oli 3 in just making these two-minute, 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 two-minute crossings of um, this little strait in Norway. And I think it's important to point out that you know, the purpose of this study is to decide how we're going to automate the ferry. And one of the immediate things we notice from that data is that the captain wasn't just piloting the vessel, dodging other vessels. He was helping little kids onto and off the ferry. And so you immediately start to automate it. You think, well, what's going to happen for those 60 times when the people, mostly little kids, needed assistance? And other things we'd say about, you know, bikes and other situations, you know, where do people sit and what's the... What's the rescue process and, you know, where do the bikes get strapped on? And there's a lot going on in that system, like you said, Drew, that, uh, you know, even if the automation can solve for the navigation, can it actually solve for the rest of the system properties as well? So over this time, there were 279 occurrences that got classed as incidents 
or as deviations from the rules. And in the vast majority of those cases, so 229 out of the 279, even though the Ole 3 has right of way, the captain of the boat is slowing down or doing something so that he passes behind the other vessel. They sort of classified them into these very minor incidents, into dangerous or in critical. So I think, Drew, in those 229, just to colour it for our listeners, would be, you know, once Ollie 3 starts his journey, if he's on the starboard side of any vessel who's proceeding down that strait, they should just wait and stop until Ollie 3 crosses the path and then they keep going. And so these situations where where Ollie 3 slowed down, is you know, the vessel might have been 50, 60, 75 metres away from the other vessel and the pleasure craft just shoots across in front, you know, and depending on how aggressive the pleasure craft is, probably means how much Ollie 3 had to slow down just to keep some separation. Yeah, and it sounds like in most of these cases, it's not even that the vessel is shooting across in front, but just looks like he's on the heading that he's going to and doesn't look like they're going to turn. So the captain just preemptively just slightly adjusts the speed to make sure that he never gets close. There are 39 incidents that were counted as more dangerous. Um, In some of these, it was because the vessel was going very fast Or the other benchmark they used is if the captain had to do something that was more drastic and active to avoid a collision, like had to, you know, deliberately and suddenly throttle back to let the other vessel go past or had to change course. And then there were 12 incidents that they counted as critical, where the captain had to actually very closely dodge to avoid a collision. And typical things in that case were that he had to sound his horn or had to actually reverse thrust and go backwards to get out of the way of something else. And the paper uses a bit of an odd language to talk about these, David. I don't know what sort of the terms passive and active usually mean to you, but the way they use it in this paper is a passive strategy is an avoidance strategy. So it may involve an actual active action by the captain, but it's not sort of asserting or following the rules. It's just keeping out of the way of other boats. It's like being timid. Whereas an active strategy is a more aggressive, where the captain follows the rules and clearly signals his intentions. So it often actually involves him sort of almost like trying to bully the other person into following the rules or at least be very clear about what he's doing. Yeah, I, I didn't quite follow the the labels passive and active when I read the paper either, Drew, because normally I'd think about them as someone doing something or something happening in the background. But I think the way that you've just explained it then, which is whether or not they it's more like um, assertive or submissive. So passive being like this submissive action, which is, you know, even though I'm right, doesn't matter to me, I'll slow down a little bit. Or assertive, which is like, actually, you know, I really don't want to reverse thrust here or I really don't want to swing this thing around. I'm going to sound my horn, I'm going to speed up or I'm really going to be aggressive. So I don't know. I don't know if that was the same interpretation, Drew, that you just reflected then, but it's um, it was interesting labels anyway. Yes. And so maybe if I sort of go through when he uses each strategy and that might give some sort of indication of what they're like. So the idea is that you most of these other boats are pleasure boats. So they're just people out on the water for fun. There are a few weird ones. Like there's a, I think there's a Viking replica ship that came across at one stage and a couple of times there were people just fishing in the middle of the channel and there was a kayak. But you know, mostly they're just people out on the water having fun. So they're behaving a bit erratically. Uh, they might not be paying attention. They might be going fast. The person operating them might be drunk or a little bit tipsy. Uh, they 
some indication that a lot of these people either don't know the navigation rules or certainly don't apply the rules treating the Ole 3 like a commercial vessel. So basically, even though the captain has right of way, this other vessel, for all these other reasons, simply doesn't respect that right of way. And you can think of that as they're violating the rules of the road. But the main strategy used by the captain is to basically diffuse the effect of these errors by the other people. So rather than strictly follow the rules himself when they're breaking the rules, what he does is he basically makes sure that they're not following the rules doesn't matter. If they're cutting ahead of him, he'll just slow down a bit and let them pass. If they look like they're going to get too close, he'll just, before he gets close to them, head the other way. And so all those strategies get used when it's not particularly dangerous to make sure that it never gets to a dangerous state. But when it does get dangerous, the captain uses a very different strategy. When he's really close to another vessel, the last thing he wants to do is it be unpredictable himself. Because you know, the risk is both boats try to dodge and they both hit each other because they've dodged in the same direction. So in fact, if he's about to collide with someone, he keeps his heading and speed constant so that it's very clear to the other boat what he's doing. And he sounds his horn to make it very clear to them that he's being steady and it's their job to get out of the way. So his way of avoiding danger is to be passive and timid. His way of dealing with danger is to be predictable and loud. The challenge for automation there, because you know there's 39 times where maybe danger is taking some evasive action and 12 times that reverse thrust and, and sound a horn. So I don't know exactly, but say there's there's you know, 50 odd occasions where I would, I would think that they were the ones that they classified as sort of active. And then these 229 deviations, which were more passive, just slowing down or something, but they're just two categories. I wonder how much gray exists between those two. And, and when, when the captain of the vessel changed strategies was being passive and then suddenly had to become active, or I suppose I find myself with an interesting coding situation for the researchers as to whether it was clear to them or not when the boundary was between how the captain was making the decision about avoiding danger or, or dealing with the danger. Yes, and I think that's one of the, I don't want to call it a shortcoming, but it's a weakness of this style of research, is that we're using low-skilled, low-experienced researchers to make sure that we've collected lots and lots of data but they can only record what they recognize and notice. And so most of what gets recorded and classified is in these broad categories. And we don't, for example, have a narrative for the captain, what he's thinking as he goes back and forth, what he's got his eyes on, why he's doing particular things, what he's worried about, what he's not worried about. Nevertheless, I think going back to the question for this episode, our listeners could just be thinking in their mind now, how would I design an automated system to make these decisions? Yeah, so, so we're about to get on to that exact question. Before we do, I just wanted to point out one interesting point that the paper makes. So when I was reading this first time, I thought I was really going to have to get my head around these Norwegian navigation rules. A lot of the paper talks to particular subsections of subsections of particular navigation codes. But it, after it sort of goes through how do you interpret these rules in this situation, it then says that actually this only matters after a collision has happened. <laughs> After the collisions happened, that's when it really matters who had right of way. Before a collision happens, really what matters are practically what situation is the captain faced with and what's the best action in these circumstances. And you, we know for sure that the best action is not 
follow the rules because you follow the rules while everyone else is dodging about. You are going to get hit or you are going to hit them. We're relying on the captain as this skilled operator who makes things safe for everyone, even though rules are getting broken all around him. Yeah, and our listeners would see a lot in in that comment you just made, Drew, about, you know, workers imagine work has done and and following the rules and getting injured is uh is not as good as not following the rules and not getting injured. Yeah. So so let's get on to the sort of automation strategies. The paper lays out three options. And David, I don't know what your impression is, but I sort of got the idea that the paper didn't really like any of the options they had. They certainly didn't come to a clear recommendation. Oh, look, I just think that I just, I'm just not sure that there's things that with our current, I mean, and like I said, I'm not an um, automation expert, and I'm sure there's a great deal of, of smarts in our automation. But when I look at a system like this that we've explained in a dynamic environment with weather and pleasure craft and people getting on and off and going back and forward and people not not really having clear rules about how the system works, I'm just not sure if it's a system that you could automate. So the first option they give is they say, well, what does it mean if we just replace the captain with a system which is trained to know the rules and to follow the rules? And the way the navigation rules are set up, if everyone follows the rules, everyone is safe. It's very, as long as you correctly classify what's a commercial vehicle and what's not, and we have everyone agree on what that decision is, then everyone following the rules is safe. But we know from this study that that is just a ridiculous assumption under these circumstances. We cannot guarantee that the other vessels know the rules. We can't guarantee that they are willing to follow the rules. And we can't even guarantee that they're capable of. So, for example, this Viking replica vessel didn't have the visibility it needed to see Ole 3 or to navigate around it. So, you know, we just have these varying capabilities. There's no way a fishing vessel at anchor knows how to dodge or is capable of giving way. And so, Drew, I, I definitely agree with the authors on this one that just replacing the captain with an autonomous vessel assuming that everyone follows the rules, is actually going to be a really, really dangerous situation. Yeah, and I'm, I'm imagining here a, a driverless car on the road that just follows the road rules and thinks, well, I've got right of way. I'm not going to care about whether someone else is in the road and just how bad that would be. The, the second option they say is, look, this strategy that the captain is using is actually really very effective. So what if we design something that can mimic the strategy? But the trouble is we'd basically need to make a decision to be conservative. So essentially always in that passive mode of assuming that no one else is going to follow the rules and giving way to everyone, which would work for safety. But this is a busy waterway. And if you've got little Ole 3 giving way to everyone, he's never actually going to get to the other side. Um, he has to make some assumptions about what's reasonable, assume that some people are going to give way to him or it's just going to be hopelessly inefficient trying to dodge around to stay clear of everyone instead of focus on what's supposed to be a straight line two-minute trip over and back. Yeah, I could see a vessel, which would probably never happen in practice, but you know, you could imagine a vessel that's just sitting there with sensors all around it and anything that it recognises as a, as a vessel within uh, a couple of hundred metres of it just results in Ollie not moving at all. And you can just see this vessel that never, ever leaves the shore on one side. Oh, I'm imagining two college students on a kayak working out that they can chase Ollie right out of the waterway and yeah, down the oh, okay. coastline. So yours, oh, okay. So you've got a bit more of a um, yeah, a fun-seeking or trouble-seeking mind than Drew. If you 
yeah, it would be interesting to see what the what the automation would actually do. Would it just stop it, or would it actually try to maintain separation distances? And could you actually herd Ollie into you know <laughs> into some kind of channel or rocks, or would it pick the rocks up on the far side as actually a vessel and never leave anyway? So the third thing they say is that okay, what we really need here is, and this is what vessels do in practice, is a way for vessels to communicate their intentions to each other. And at the moment, that happens really informally. So some of it gets done by a sort of basic understanding of the rules that gives you some idea that helps you predict. And some of it just comes from you watch the other vessel, you see whether they're paying attention, you see how they're reacting, and that conveys their attention. And then some of it is done more deliberately, like when the captain holds a steady course and sounds his horn. He's clearly signalling his intentions where he's going. And they say that for the automated system to work, you'd need to replicate that informal thing formally. And basically make it into an environment which is friendly for automation, where every vessel can signal its intentions to other vessels. Andrew, I think this would be the strategy that we think with like unmanned aerial systems in commercial airspace and things like that, where all of the aerial vehicles have got the ability to communicate with the others, basically their location and heading and, and things like that. And I suppose that would be the basis of uh, autonomous vehicles on the road, would be that every vehicle can communicate with every other vehicle in some way that's smarter than just kind of location. But even then, Drew, does that solve the kayaker? No, and that's exactly the point they make, is they say that this system is basically the equivalent to every vessel filing a flight plan, or at least broadcasting its flight, It's you know, what the sail equivalent of a flight plan is to everything around it. And the trouble with that sort of thing is the moment you have a pleasure craft that doesn't have the special equipment it needs to be part of that environment, it becomes really dangerous for that lone outsider into the system. And so, you know, sure, we can put a sophisticated system on Ole 3. And sure, we can put it on all the other water taxis. And maybe we can mandate on every new motorboat that gets built, it gets one of these. But then someone's going to tow an old kayak down to the water or pull out a sailboat that hasn't been fitted with the beacon. And suddenly it'll become invisible to the system of automation. Yeah, so I think there's three approaches there to automation in the workplace. You've got one which is just um, you know automating one component of the system, so just only three the ferry, and just assume that you understand the rules of how the system operates. You know, I think number two is having a really passive strategy, which compromises the chance of the system actually delivering what the system's designed to do. And then the third is actually try to automate the entire system, so the entire system communicates, and then there you're talking at how do you change an entire system just so you can remove one person from one ferry? You know, is that even economically a right thing to do? So for me, even these three options, like you just sounds like a big stalemate. And that was my comment earlier about, I'm not even sure that, you know, you could or should um, or need to automate this particular part of the system. Yeah. So, so I, I don't actually know what happened. In fact, this is only a very recently published paper. So I don't even think a decision has been made yet about what's going to happen to this particular ferry. But I think we've sort of encountered examples of different systems that do adopt these different strategies. You know, I'm thinking, for example, you know, some warehouses decide, okay, it's dangerous to have automated forklifts around with humans, so we'll just get the humans out of there entirely, and this can be a robot-friendly environment. And the danger with all of those is you know, people routinely get killed in humanless factories because they're really hostile environments when a human does have to go into them. Yeah, so Drew, I'm thinking, I, mean, I can't help but think that a pedestrian cycle bridge might be the uh, be the best approach here if you want to remove um, 
I'll E3 and he's captain from the system, but um, maybe the Viking ship's too tall. So Drew, practical takeaways from this paper. Are we ready to do them? Uh, yeah, I think so. So I think the first one that I'd like to throw in is just you. what they tried to do here was demonstrate the usefulness of studying humans in order to understand what we need to do with automation. Yeah, this is a, you know, you might think a simple, but also a very complex environment. One little boat back and forward across a hundred meter wide section of water every two minutes for 10 hours a day. So on one hand, you think that's back, forth, back, forth, back, forth. Yep. Okay. We can automate that or we can change that. But it just shows you when you study any system involving people, just how complex it can get, how, how quickly it can get very complex. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm always fascinated with what appear to be small, simple jobs, what we can learn by seriously paying attention to what they like to do. And so the second one, Drew, is the importance and the role of skilled and experienced humans in making complex environments safe. Yeah, they make this point in the paper that we can think about this situation as caused by how dangerous the humans are, that we've got these humans who are drunk, who are making mistakes, who are deviating, who aren't following the rules. But we can equally examine this situation as one human who is skilled at his job making the situation safe. And the importance of having that expertise, of being able to have a system which is tolerant of mistakes, that is understanding, is even basically friendly and polite and compassionate to the mistakes happening around him. Yeah, absolutely true. Like nearly 5,000 crossings in this two-month period and you know something like 270, 280 times where he... He, I assume it's a he, but could be he and a she. So kept the system safe, you know, and made the system safe. And that's what people do in our organizations every day. And then the third takeaway I've thrown in a little bit facetiously, which is we are in no way ready for driverless cars yet. If we can't get poor little Ollie 3 going back and forth safely, how do we deal with an urban environment with automated vehicles? So Drew, is there anything you'd like to know from our listeners um, in relation to this week's episode? So I've just got a simple one. I'd love to hear your story about introducing, it doesn't have to be like full automation, just any sort of taking a job that's done by a human and computerizing it or using technology to support it with unintended consequences. And you, what happened and sort of how does that fit with the type of things that we've noticed in this paper? So that's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Please tell a friend about the podcast, leave us a review or contact us on LinkedIn and let us know what you think. Send any other comments, questions or ideas for future episodes directly to us at feedback at safetyofwork.com. 